Welcome to Powder Keg Igniting Startups, episode 22 with David Olk. Now, my conversation with David is pretty awesome because he is the co-founder of Shopkeep, which is a point-of-sale software company that's raised over $100 million in capital. But more recently, David started a company called Vore, which is a marketplace for building more authentic business relationships. Now, don't worry, we'll explain what that means later. But for right now, what you need to know is I am your host, Matt Hunkler, and I am the founder and CEO of Verge, which is a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent. And as my team and I have grown Verge over the past seven years, we've hosted more than a thousand entrepreneurs at our events around the world. Those founders have gone on to raise more than $500 million in capital collectively. They're disrupting industries, creating wealth, and changing the world and they're doing it in areas outside of Silicon Valley. That's right, we are unapologetically un-Valley here at Powder Keg, and that's why we started this podcast. Each guest has their own Powder Keg full of raw skills and talents that have ignited their startups and fueled their growth. These are their stories. You can find me on Twitter and on Instagram, at Hunkler, and that's H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R. And what I want you to do is let me know how Verge Powder Keg and I can help you with your entrepreneurial journey. In the meantime, please make sure you subscribe to the Powder Keg Podcast wherever you listen to your shows. We are on SoundCloud, Stitcher, all the major podcast outlets, including, of course, iTunes. And you can find all of those links to subscribe at our website, powderkeg.com. Yes, we now have the .com, which makes us oh so official. And that's powderkeg, all one word, .com. You can also find all of the transcriptions, the show notes, all the links to everything we talk about in each and every episode, including this one. And of course, you can subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single thing. Thank you to all of you powder keggists out there who have already left us a review in iTunes. It's your feedback and the sharing that helps us reach more people and grow this community. We're reaching thousands of people every month, and I'm so excited about that. This week's episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by Developer Town. These guys have been friends of ours for years. They've helped so many startups take their ideas to market, gain traction, and build and grow and meet customer needs. But something you might not know about Developer Town is that they actually help enterprise companies move like a startup. Corporate innovators often work with Developer Town to explore software solutions that support their business needs. And now the cool thing is Developer Town leverages all of their years working with startups and they can help companies better understand the viability of potential software solutions, apps, uh, products that they're doing uh, digitally and quickly bring them to market. Developer Town's created this proven sprint to market process so that large enterprises can move like a startup. You can find out more about Developer Town, read up on them at developertown.com slash powder keg. That's Developer Town, all one word, powder keg, all one word. Again, that's developertown.com slash powder keg. Developer Town, start something. Okay, our guest today is serial entrepreneur David Olk, who kept it real when we connected in Manhattan during my last visit to New York. As I mentioned previously, he founded and built Shopkeep, which is a point-of-sale software. You know, they took this whole point-of-sale process, put it in the cloud, made everything seamless and easy to use, which is why they were able to grow the company from the original two co-founders to now nearly 300 people. Um, While David was there, he sourced and closed over $100 million of outside capital. He knows a ton about developing strategies 
strategic partnerships, building teams, um, and anything you would need to know to go from zero to 100 with a startup. Now he sits on the board and does work with an immensely talented executive team uh, that continues to lead Shopkeep. That's opened up his time to start a company called Vore, which fosters authentic networks. And they're really trying to help people succeed in the business world, whether you're uh, an entrepreneur or a leader in your field, they're really trying to build this important community at Vore and try to solve some big problems. Now, the cool thing is David meets a ton of entrepreneurs through the work he does at Vore, as well as some of the other things like mentoring at Techstars, you know, a huge global accelerator network. Um, it's going to get really real with David Oak. So I hope you're ready for this. Let's set this thing off. So tell me what you're doing right now at Vore. Yeah, so Vore is a platform that helps people come together with curated, using overused words. Uh, platform curated. Yeah, yeah right. all those words. It's an ecosystem too. Yeah, yeah right. nice. Yeah. nice. So, so, you know, actually at the end of the day, Vore just puts together small dinners of like-minded people cool. that are vetted, interesting to each other. Um, and these events are powered by somebody who uh, wants to meet those people uh, and is relevant to them. So what makes them a little bit differentiated is that we're able to put together really great groups of people because we have this concept of a host uh, right now. And the host is somebody who uh, invites their friends to dinner uh, based on some filters we give them. And people come because that person invited them. So for instance, if if you invited me to dinner, we're boys yeah. now, right? My, my, I would absolutely yeah, invite yeah, you to dinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we're boys now. You invite me to dinner. My reaction is not going to be, who else is coming? Right? My reaction right. is going to be, yeah, thanks for inviting me. I'm going to show up early. I'm going to stay late. I'm delighted you invited me to join your friends. But yeah. if, if, uh, if a public accounting firm or uh, some enterprise SaaS product invites me to dinner, my reaction is, yeah, you should be inviting me. Right? I, I, think, I think very highly of myself. I have a massive ego. You know, I spent $2 million on your audit. You should be inviting me. I'm going to show up late. I'm going to leave early. Yeah. You know, there are people that would sponsor this conversation, right? And sure. So there's something a little bit more natural um, to put small groups of people together and then watch them go build things. Uh, so that what well, that's what we've done. We've created a platform that very small dinners, and we're doing dinners just because breaking bread is an interesting. Uh, it's an interesting mechanism to get people to know each other. Is there a particular format to the dinners that you found works really well? Yeah, I mean, we've done a few hundred of these over the last few months. So wow. we do almost over the last few months. We've done hundreds. Yeah, we do over. We do about twenty a month. How do you uh, scale to that? Um, it's really easy, uh, frankly, because you make venue relationships that just become turnkey. Okay. Um, you have a back end, uh, you know, a front end team uh, that is just very good at putting on dinners, and then you kind of get into a cadence of what works just based on some simple best practices. And the best practices for our events, they're not formal events. We're not loading people up with here you what here's what we do. Yeah. But before every dinner, we sit down with the person hosting it, who's invited their friends, and the person powering it, and basically tell them, hey, here's what we've learned. Here's what the data shows. Do the following things. Show up at six fifteen. It starts at 6.30. Ask everyone to introduce themselves in less than a minute. Uh, there's rarely a venture capitalist that can invite, that can introduce themselves in less than three minutes. <laughs> so get people to say just one minute, right? Yep. Um, Do you actually have like a stopwatch? Uh, no, but some, some of our hosts are better than others. They get kind of cute with it, right? Yep. Like, uh, and, and they love to just like, you know, use it as an opportunity to promote themselves. That's why they're doing it in the first place. Sure. Uh, so people who host our dinners, they have a platform of some sort anyway. They're either influencers to somebody in the group okay. or they genuinely rely on us to take all the drudgery out of planning. So what, what makes someone an influencer to you? What makes somebody an influencer? Uh, if 
other people follow their ideas and try to prescribe to their beliefs and learn what they have to say. Um, influencers can also be confrontational, right? They could be uh, polarizing, yeah. right? That still makes them an influencer. And, yeah. Have you have you studied any of those characteristics that make people want to follow them? Like, what what are some of those? I haven't. That... I mean, I'm not. I'm not really. I, I am not interested in influencer marketed I, marketing. I have some friends are. Yeah. Uh, what what most inspires me is just um, having you know powering people, providing them the ability to get a group of their friends together. Yeah. Uh, right now, I mean, because uh, you know what what led to this was. I, uh, you know, my, my last business got pretty sizable, yeah. <laughs> right? Tell and me about that. Yeah, sure. So before Voray, I started a company here in New York called Shopkeep. Yep. Um, Shopkeep is a cloud-based point-of-sale system. Um, I don't know how much you know about point-of-sale, but it's a Probably pla- more than I ever wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, point-of-sale generally... <laughs> Just because I'm not in commerce. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not in, like, you know, storefront commerce. Yeah, I mean, even today, point-of-sale is generally a place where technology goes to die and the user interface is from, like, 1945. Sure. Um, most of these organizations have this big, disgusting box on their countertop, and they have a server in the basement. Yeah. And you're going to wind up having some delivery boy surfing porn that gets a virus onto the server, and next thing you know, you're closed for business because you can't transact. And good luck getting the consultant that you paid 20 grand to install the server into the store on a Friday night, right? right? You're basically closed for business. So what's fine. Yeah. So what, what Shockey did is we took that whole thing and we put it on the cloud. We made it a lot more affordable, easy to use, easy to get going. And that business grew from me and my co-founder who was a retailer, uh, you know, grew from two of us in a room to nearly 300 people. We have 30,000 merchants. We've raised, you know, close to a hundred million dollars and it's a big business now. And what happened with that business actually was it got too big. I, I ran the business day to day. It was really interesting because I'm probably a good zero to 100 guy yeah. uh, and I really understand my I think one of the reasons we were successful is because I always looked at my role as hiring inspiring retaining and never running out of capital and I did my first 100 employees well just in general and yeah. I, I think what the reason why Shopkeep was successful or is successful is because I think the founders did a really good job most of the time of hiring functional area experts pulling ourselves out of the day-to-day, setting goals, and making sure the strategy is aligned. And my job, a lot of my job, became primarily managing the board. Uh, and as the business got more successful, that was like 80% of my job. Yeah. And I wasn't very good at it because I'm a batshit crazy founder and I tell everybody what's on my mind. <laughs> so, you know, it just uh, managing the board was never something that I was very good at even to this day. Um, so, but, but then the business, uh, you know, when my first child was born and I was literally pitching uh, one of our investors on a pro rata for this series C from the recovery room of my first son being born. And uh, it w- and it was the only time we can do the oh meeting because this is when our global partnership gets together. And if you can please just, it's a check the box for us, but you have to take them through the deck. You're the only one that could do it. And you're an entrepreneur. This is what you live and breathe and it's fine, right? You know that, you'll yep. do anything for your business. Of course. Um, and uh, I was literally in the recovery room and my wife, uh, Isaiah, my son, is probably like five hours old. And my wife is looking at me like, you have an actual child now, 
All right, you have an actual child, like, and my wife is a former banker, okay. and she's very commercial, uh, but so she proceeds to tell me, you know, you're, you're, actually, you're actually doing yourself a financial disservice by continuing to work at this company, right? Like, why don't you hire a CEO to run this company? Like, you're fully vested, like, you have no idea what you're doing, um, everybody blows smoke up your ass all day, you're not happy, 80% of your time is working with these people, go do something else. Uh-huh. And, and I looked at her like she was insane. Like, nobody could run this business but me. It's going to be a tire fire if I'm not here. Are you out of your mind? And then, like, three months later, I was probably, um, I, something happened, and I just, like, I'm, like, I'm in, the, in, the, in the office at 2 a.m., and I'm like, why am I still here? <laughs> and, um, and then I went to the board with great trepidation and the other management, and I was kind of like, hey, I'm thinking about leaving. You know, I'll stay on as the head of talent. I'll be the co-founder, whatever you want to do. I'll help you with the... F- with the capital raises, but I think it's time that, you know, you know, I left thinking that they would flip out, uh, but they were like, that's a great idea, you know, as a, as a matter of fact, that guy's there, that guy's coming in right now, you know, this is very mature of you, David, so everybody was happy, and now the guy who runs the business makes me feel really good and really bad about myself, right, really good because the business is growing and it's creating yeah. so much value and I'm the largest common shareholder, but really bad because he's just like so much better at running the business than me. <laughs> I, I, I so often hear that, that there's almost like three different CEOs, right? There's like the zero to 100 CEO. Yeah. There's like the 100 to maybe 500, 1,000 CEO. Yeah. And then there's like the IPO CEO, if yeah. that's, you know, yeah. if that's a stage in that yeah. company's life cycle. Look, I think Steve Blank talks a lot about those things yep. when in, in the lean launchpad. And I think it's almost scientific that different things happen to businesses and different people need to be engaged at different times. Yep. And I failed, so, I failed forward so many times in my career, not just with ShopKeep, that you get to the point now where you're turning 40, you've been through it, and you kind of identify what you enjoy, what you're passionate about, and you get comfortable in your own skin. You no longer need the ego. You don't really want anything from anybody. And, you know, for me, I genuinely like putting people together and watching what happens. Like, right. that's, that's what I enjoy. Yeah, I it's love, magical. Yeah, I love helping people. I love being an advocate because, I, you know, most of my life I was this egomaniac with a big chip on my shoulder that wanted to, you know, grow all these businesses and be better than everybody. Now I'm at this point in my life where it's fantastic to watch what happens when you help people build relationships. The, the CEO or the, the varying types of people at different organizations that you brought up, it's clear. Uh, I mean, there's different people that should be at different companies, uh, that should be at companies at different times. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is it interesting that you had such a good relationship with your wife yeah. that she is able to... Uh, have that outside perspective. Well, my, my wife got the short end of the stick because when she met me, I was I, I had this really nice job. I uh, was the director of mergers and acquisitions at IAC. But uh, you know, I worked for the, you know this large organization that had all these consumer-facing internet businesses, and we had eight billion dollars. Sorry, we had about four billion dollars of cash to deploy on consumer-facing internet businesses in 2008. Oh, wow. Um, so, like, you know, I'll get back to my wife, but, at, you know, at, at IAC is a perfect example of the difference uh, between, you know, growing up and then, like, becoming an entrepreneur. Yep. And, and, you know, at IAC, we had just levered up four businesses, declared a dividend to ourselves, and spun them off to the public. 
Um, one of them was Ticketmaster, the Home Shopping Network, Lending Tree, and a fractional ownership business called Interval Travel. My job as director of M&A was to help deploy that capital on consumer-facing internet businesses. Uh, and in 2008, it was an interesting time because oh, yeah. all, yeah, I mean, you were like, right? Yeah. All of the venture capital funds were recycling capital because their LP investors were pulling money out of the funds a little bit earlier on in their life cycle. So you had, um, you know, Calpers and Yale even pulling money out of gold-slated, you know, VCs like some of the, the large ones on Sandhill Road. So they were all exiting businesses earlier on in their life cycle. Mm-hmm. And in my role as, you know, M&A guy, uh, I met every single person in venture very quickly. They'd come up and say, you know, what do you want to buy? I got an e-commerce business. I got an ad network, you know, Newsweek. Like, what's interesting? <laughs> and I met everyone in venture very quickly, which really helped me become an entrepreneur. Oh, sure. Uh, because, well, well, for one reason. How network? Well, not only was it the network, but uh, my, well, actually my college roommate um, was, at Tulane was Perry Chen. Uh, who started Kickstarter and Perry you know one of my closest friends always much cooler than me (laughs) Um, I always wanted to hang out with Perry if he would hang out with me Uh, but you know pretty cool I mean you're a pretty cool guy (laughs) I'm all right but uh, you know Perry you know we went to plant together we were you know we we, we lived together and he he had been uh, talking about Kickstarter for for quite some time it was always in his head in different ways and uh, when I was at IAC and I met everyone in venture Perry was like hey you know, you can can you can you help with Kickstarter? You know all these people, yeah. and it was still just a kernel of an idea for him. Uh, and I immediately told him that I want nothing to do with his little internet business. I'm a big finance douchebag, but I, I'll help you, right? I'll help you. Uh, so Which, I, of course, your, your wife probably appreciated that level of stability. And well, that, I mean, that's why we started talking about it, because of my wife. So I, you know, I literally, I became the first board member of Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we, we raised some capital from a friendly hedge fund investor, and then eventually Fred, I introduced him to Fred Wilson and Andy Weissman when he was at Betaworks, and they eventually did a Series A. And it was, what was inspiring was for me to be a part of something like that. Well, of course. Right? So Kickstarter was very inspiring for me to go from like this kind of M&A corporate guy into who's afraid of failure to watch <laughs> Perry, uh, who's the, one of those most brilliant people I've ever met. And it was very inspiring for me. And then I spent like the next two years coming to Perry with harebrained ideas like, what do you think of this? And he would be like, would you ever use that product? Right? But, <laughs> but my wife, when we met, um, it was funny because I had this big job. I had all my hair. I went to the, you know, I made money and I went to the gym every day. Uh, and then one day I woke up and I'm like, hey, Sarah, we're going to be broke. And by the way, you're not going to see me for like eight years and I'm going to lose all my hair and gain 50 pounds, right? How does, you knew all that going in, huh? Yeah, yeah no, it was, uh, but that's kind of <laughs> what happened. So now that we started this new business, Sarah's like, why are you doing this again? Like, yeah, yeah <laughs> it's sure. A, it's yeah. a compulsion. It's a compulsion, yeah. Does it feel like a compulsion to you, starting companies? It feels like a compulsion for me because there's, when, when you know, I, I don't think I start companies. I think I'm very good at hiring, inspiring, retaining, and never running out of capital. So I think I'm very good at identifying what I'm good at, finding people who uh, will, for whatever deluded reason, work with me on it. And then as a team, kind of building things and identifying what everybody excels at. Um, so I think... 
I've gotten pretty good at understanding the cadence of what it takes to start a business. And it's also inspiring to be a part of something. I really enjoy creating things, building things, especially if they help other people. Um, Shopkeep was not my vision. It was Jason Richelson's vision. I knew I could certainly be helpful in installing it. I didn't know anything about point of sale, but I was really inspired by helping small and medium businesses make better decisions. Yeah. You know, helping bring Main Street back. Uh, for Vore, I'm very inspired by helping people build professional relationships. Kickstarter, I mean, Perry always says, I mean, they're literally saving lives, yeah. you know, in some strange way by helping the creative class in the way they do. Oh, absolutely. You know, so, so, you know, I know what I'm good at and, you know, it, the, and it's always for me from a pure financial perspective, I feel like I'm the type of person that could always make money working for somebody. Um, you know, again, I'm probably unemployable, right? But I feel like if I needed to feed my children, I could always go make money. I really enjoy creating equity value for myself, my investors, and the, and the people who join the companies I work at. Because if you learn how to do it effectively, uh, take all the emotion out of the room. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's actually fun to build a business, you, you know, and anything is work, yeah. right? I mean, if I was still working at PricewaterhouseCoopers right now, I'd probably be working just as hard. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and I want to get back to sure, sure. building equity, yeah. because I think that's an, that's an interesting concept, but um, you mentioned that transition from being an employee, you know, high-powered, all the VCs want to know you. Yeah. Um, was it difficult to make that decision uh, or make that transition? From that role to well not, well, not really, because I don't think I was very good at my job. Right? Okay. And what I mean by that is, you know, I grew up in public accounting. I was, a, I, I was in the mergers and acquisitions group at PwC. Okay. So I was a CPA. I worked for a very large accounting firm. I was very linear. I graduated Tulane with an accounting degree, and I was delighted to make $40,000 in 1998 and one day make partner if I killed myself for 15 years. Uh, and I was always chasing that carrot. And my job when I was doing this was primarily to help private equity funds buy businesses. Okay. So I was in the M&A group, but it was more of a kind of audit function in some ways. So if Warburg Pincus or Apollo was going to buy your business, I would be sent there to give you a commercial and financial enema. And if you're ever selling, if you're ever selling, <laughs> yeah, like if you're ever selling your business to a private equity fund, I would be the last guy you'd want to meet. My job was to destroy as much value as possible, right? Okay. Um, so it, and then somehow I got this job at IAC, and I'd always wanted to be a real deal guy. Right? Yeah. I had a lot of friends that worked in private equity and Goldman Sachs, and I was an accountant who thought I was a deal person. And somehow I elbowed my way into this role at IAC working for two of the most sophisticated deal people I've ever met. One is Kara Nortman, who's at Upfront Ventures now. Oh, she's now. been on the podcast. Right. So Kara is extraordinarily sophisticated. I love that. And she hired me and somehow inherited me. And she worked for Jason Rapp, who is also in L.A. At, at, uh, and so two of the most, you know, sophisticated deal makers I've ever met. And I joined this group at IAC and three weeks into the job... Um, Kara announces that she's pregnant and she's going with her first child and that's when she moved back out west and joined City Search. But I'm going to report into Jason. Um, mind you, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea how to <laughs> sure. really do deals. Like, like all people in yeah. deals. And, 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 then I, and then Jason leaves to go be, I think, the CEO of Mahalo after being the CEO of Gifts. And I'm literally in this job now for a month and a half 
uh, reporting directly into Barry and Victor in some strange way who were running IAC wow. uh, before they brought on different management. But that took a very long time, and we were doing deals. And I had literally, and anybody who was at IAC would tell you I probably wasn't the best deal guy, but I tried hard, right? And there were a lot of people at IAC that are just fantastic. It's so, Yeah, so when I saw the opportunity, but one, but you know, meeting Perry, getting really involved in entrepreneurship, seeing the fantastic brands that we had, IAC had a lot of entrepreneurs. It was inspiring for me to watch these people building equity value, building things. And I said to myself, maybe, and again, linear, afraid of failure, Interesting. I said to myself, wow, maybe there's some skills that are transferable for me if I just started doing something. And I had no wife, no kid, no mortgage. I'm in a job that has a very, you know, very good job that I can leverage into other things. But, you know, you only live once. It's not a dress rehearsal. Let me just try to just take this shot and see if I have skills that I can add to something different. And I can tell you I am so much better at being an entrepreneur um, than I am at working at a large company or doing M&A work for so many reasons. Well, when you were working in the M&A space, I imagine you learned a lot, yeah. whether it was by figuring it out and failing or whether it was watching other people and doing it right. Um, what did you learn about building business value in that role? Uh, and, and what sorts of things drive to your point, uh, increased equity. Yeah, I mean, it depends on what stage the company is. Sure. Right? Well, let's talk about early stage. I mean, early stage companies, building equity value really is somewhat determined by your ability to generate traction for it, right? Yeah. For whatever you're doing. Yep. If you're developing a new... If you're developing a new podcast, getting listeners. If you're developing a enterprise software company, generating revenue, right? So these are the things you have to do. And wait, wait, wait. Startups generating revenue? Well, if you're... And actually, it's funny. Uh, when we started Shopkeep, you know, I, I realize now that, you know, enterprise software companies, if you have revenue, you, a lot of your problems go away. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I was giving you a hard time. Yeah. No, I know you're giving me a hard time. But, um, but you know, I guess, you know, as far as, like, generating value for those early stage businesses, I, I think... From being an M&A and looking at those businesses from the outside in, I've realized a couple of things. I've realized, you know, first, you know, every business from a founder's perspective, you kind of have, you know, this concept of players on the field mm -hmm. and then people in the stands. And the players are the operators and founders of the company. And I feel that way for any company I've been on. Of and, you know, we're training hard when it's not game day. And we're trying to hit a single every now and then you hit a home run. Sometimes you have to take the pitcher out. But, and a lot of times you're committing errors. Uh, <laughs> but what you're going to have is this dynamic of people in the stands. And the people in the stands have paid their entry price. They're going to be sitting right behind, plate, right behind home plate and yelling onto the field, David, run to first, take the pitcher out. Nine times out of ten, none of them could even play the game, right? right? But they've paid their entry price. They feel like they have the ability to yell onto the field. And sometimes, um, sometimes you hear them, and sometimes they say really interesting things. Yeah, maybe I should move up in a batter's box a little bit. But they're going to talk about you on Monday. And success for an early-stage business really depends on your ability to play the game well while listening to what people are playing, saying in the stands 
putting on a good show for them, but doing your best to hit a home run and becoming a great player. Because nine times out of ten, those people can't play the game. You want somebody who's in the owner's box, very far away, and every now and then just calls the bullpen because they have something really meaningful to say, and when that phone rings, you answer it. But there's always going to be people with an opinion. And when you're on the field, it's really all about no retreat, no surrender. The game is very, very long. Just keep training and keep trying to hit singles. And if you do that, you get to the point where all of a sudden, you know, you're batting cleanup and people are cheering you on. So I, I believe that a lot of early stage businesses get distracted. They get distracted by the wrong things. Yep. They, you know, and, and a lot of that shows up in fundraising, actually. I see a lot of early stage businesses that think the first thing they need to do is put together wireframes and go pitch the business. Sure. Right. And That's I would. sexy thing. Right. I mean, let's go talk to investors. Right. Right. Let's and, get headlines. Yeah. And investors in early stage businesses, even though most of them are are, are war knights deploying other people's capital and they, and they haven't built it. And they <laughs> haven't built Well, and, and they haven't built their own business on their own. Right. Um, a lot of them have are seeing a lot of opportunities. They're seeing a lot of early stage businesses and they're very, very sophisticated and very, very smart. And they will understand your business very quickly if you explain it to them. So for that reason, you don't really have to always be explaining people what you're doing. Mm. You have to build it and give somebody an opportunity to understand what you're doing very quickly without having to explain it to them all the time. Yeah. And I think too many early stage businesses get distracted, they're not focused, and they don't just start building their product, doing a ton of user discovery, and getting to the building uh, in very iterative forms. And it's all about focus with early stage businesses. And if you're building a software business, software is just a tool, right? Prioritize what you should be building first based on what users are telling you. Well, and, and then go raise capital. And you mentioned the, the baseball analogy, which I, I love, yeah. in terms of the fans in the stands and the yeah. players on the field. Talk to me about that with respect to hitting base hits versus hitting home runs. Well, I mean, I, I think a good analogy is perhaps something like large strategic partnerships, right? They always sound fantastic. They typically get board members very excited. They typically get other team members very excited. And if you have a, you know, if you have an e-commerce business and, or if you have some type of consumer product, just to use an example, and Walmart is really interested in selling your product, yeah. that sounds fantastic. But I can tell you nine times out of 10, it's going to take you two years to do that deal, right? And it's gonna be very distracting until you do it. And then just signing that relationship is gonna be a lot easier than actually executing on it. Mm -hmm. And I see a lot of early stage businesses try to go for these large channel partnerships. And when That'd you- like swing for the fences. Right, and, 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 and that's okay. You should try to build large strategic partnerships. And you should certainly, embrace them and cultivate them. Uh, but certainly what happens with a lot of early stage startups is they went into the business thinking, oh, I have a friend at this large company who's an advisor to my to, to, to this new uh, you know, fetus I'm putting together and, <laughs> and they're gonna help me grow it into, a, into an adult. But, but normally what happens is it's just a very long life cycle. This happens in fintech, especially. That's what, make fin that's what makes fintech hard, right? Because mm -hmm. there's a few very large financial services organizations that are fintech customers. They're typically run by their compliance organizations. And when you build a fintech product, the hardest thing is getting these people to use that product. And it takes two years. And then they finally sign a deal with you, 
but it's been two years and now you just have to execute on that deal. So if you're, if you're building a business that has a direct sales organization while you're also managing these large strategic partnerships, um, it's a lot easier to be successful and you'll, you always almost have to parallel path them, path them. I'm a big fan of hitting singles. Um, but hiring that cleanup hitter, <laughs> you know, to manage the big strategic partnerships and, and make sure it doesn't distract the business, the engineering team, the product team, or the sales organization. Well, you get enough singles, you're going to eventually score home runs. Right? I mean, that's, that's the concept, In right? Theory. And But then you also learn how to do things well so you can do them at scale. What happens when you, um, and then maybe I'm, I'm beating this metaphor to death, but how do you handle those hiccups along the way? You know, you've got someone on third base, but then you get your third out. That's a good question. I mean, like I said, it's a marathon. Building a business is no retreat, surrender. No retreat, no surrender. I find that as an entrepreneur, as a founder, as anybody that's part of an early stage team in business at any level, part of your job is taking the emotion out of the room. Right, and working strategically with other people in a collaborative fashion, hmm. making database decisions so there's no guesswork. There's always a lot of personalities involved in early stage businesses. That's why people are doing it in the first place. You typically have a lot of charismatic people that are maybe somewhat coin operated, potentially unemployable for whatever reason, getting together to try to bring to life a big idea. With that is gonna come a lot of mistakes, a lot of sophistication without experience, mm. and the potential to make a lot of mistakes. But mistakes happen. But what's inexcusable to me uh, and it's some of the learnings I've had is ego, emotion, taking yourself too seriously and not thinking of the point that you're building a business together. It's a commercial enterprise and it's not about you. It's about your customers, your users, or what you're trying to build. And that's where, that's where a lot of companies stumble. They stumble with the emotion. They stumble with uh, leadership that just takes themselves well, way too seriously can't pull themselves out of things, yep. right? And you see that all the time. Um, you know, like, yeah, the tech space is a good place to, to talk about that. You yep. have, you know, fantastically successful founders um, who take themselves very seriously that really haven't done anything yet. Yeah. You know, I see that all the time. Like, sure. especially for our dinners. Yeah. Like, um, it's okay, you don't have to come. It's just a dinner, right? right? Like, you know, it's like, you know, but if you commit to something, show up. <laughs> right. You know, so we one of the things I like about our dinners is that people show up yeah. on time. And I think we're coming back to a place in our society where people care about each other, want to, are hungry for real direct interaction uh, and respect for each other and making commitments and doing business the way it used to be done, which is in person. Yeah. Right. And that's something that's exciting for me. I feel like people are hungry for that. Was Vore modeled after anything? Yeah, Vore is probably modeled after my co-founder, Mark Gerson's Shabbat dinners. Mm. Uh, you know, one of the best times of my week, uh, and we're not, I'm not religious, um, I, I am Jewish, but we, one of the best times of my week has been experiencing Shabbat at Mark's house <laughs> because he always brings together people. Uh, he invites them to his house and for Shabbat dinner, all different types of people, not just Jewish, with their children. You sit down on Friday 
and turn everything else off except being with your family and a group of people that are usually pretty interesting. And from that, I have built more meaningful relationships from anything else, which is really what led to Vore um, in that I was sitting there already throwing uh, events. And what I mean by that is uh, when when I had left ShopKeep, I was basically for the first time in my life uh, not working. It was the first time I was not working an 80-hour week. And it was great at first. I had never been on the proverbial beach. My wife would go off to work. The kids would leave with the nanny. And I'd be sitting there scratching at the walls after three weeks. There's only so much. <laughs> I mean, there's only so much you can watch, you know, binge watch Justified and, like, you know, make omelets in your underwear at 11 a.m. It was just, like, really boring. Uh, yeah, and how, did, how did that feel three weeks in? It, it, so you're scratching the, at the walls. It, it was tough, to be honest. I'd be sitting there on a Wednesday, like, watching TV, you know, earning a living pretty well, <laughs> right, but not working. Yeah. And um, I would sometimes say to myself, hey, is this what Jack Welch would be doing on a Wednesday when he was my age? <laughs> you know, probably not. So I started getting hungry to getting involved in things. And this is actually what led to Voray combined with what Mark was doing in that – <laughs> in that a lot of my friends in venture started sending me to their companies. Even though I was a little bit hungover from Shopkeep, they all knew that I was available. So I would have uh, large venture funds here in New York send me to some founder because I can be helpful. And I would sit down with somebody, and I was a complete cliche, right? Some guy who started a big company, who's not there anymore, keeping a blog and advising people, right? But, <laughs> but I would sit down with some of these truly amazing founders, great innovators, and much smarter than me, but I would sit down with them and they've raised like $20 million and I would say something like, you should hire a head of sales. And they would be like, whoa, that's the best idea you ever had. That's amazing. What else can you tell me? Right? And I'd say, well, oh, when's your next board meeting? Well, Thursday. Oh, let me see the board deck. Board deck? Data pack? Oh, I don't know what that is. So I just, you know, and of course I'm exaggerating, but I started like advising people on just what I've experienced from seeing the movie. Was there one thing in particular that more often you were getting called in to help with? Yeah, I think I think I was getting called in for when that founder had hit like 25 to 30 people and was really struggling to pull themselves out of things. Mm-hmm. And I would sit down with that founder and just talk about my experiences. Talk about... Out of working in the business and more working right, in the Right. Like a good example is is a sales force, just using a quick example. Yeah. Um, a sales organization for a product that is sellable is typically transformational for any business uh, at any level. But founders, for whatever reason, especially if they haven't managed businesses in the past, like to hire sales reps and then work with them to sell the product. Right? What I always try to tell uh, anybody I work with, especially if it's an enterprise sales business or a SaaS company, is don't hire sales reps. Hire a player mentor coach who can train sales reps and develop processes and help you build that sales machine. And this is somebody certainly you can sell, but this is somebody you are selling to scale an organization and build a sales machine. I never want to see somebody hiring sales reps for a business that's working and has a... Not a founder. Not a founder. Uh, that, that has a great LTV to CAC ratio that's really determined, has unit economics, and it could be a business if people are buying it. I'd like to see them exploring how to build a sales organization. So I would say these types of things to founders. Yeah. Right? And then what happened was I really enjoyed putting them together. Right? So I started putting all these founders together 
and then he would go off and do something. Do you remember the first time you did that? Sure, I I remember like I did it like the first eight times. Um, <laughs> I, I you know I wound up on a few venture back boards uh, with really fantastic founders, and one of them said to me one day, "Hey, you should have a happy hour." It was actually Evan Hammer uh, from SmartPost. And Evan said to me, you should have a happy hour. Every time you introduce me to somebody, it's just, it's fantastic. It helps me so much. You should just put everyone together. I said, okay, I'll do it. So I put everybody together for drinks. And I had like maybe 20 people. I paid the bar bill. And then it was the next day, they were all like, you should do this every eight weeks. And then it just snowballed, right? The next event I invited more people that I knew in the tech community and I also invited some some engineers because everybody's always looking for engineers and I have a lot of friends that are engineers and then I invited product people and then I invited early stage tech investors and I invited late stage tech investors but it was all very well curated yeah. and it got to the point where I had 200 people coming to David's tech drinks like people would call me how do I get to your tech drink I'm like it's just a Google Calendar invite here come but but then what happened was um, it was getting expensive and my wife and I was always paying for it I never and I, I didn't want to get a sponsor sure. I didn't want to be one of those guys going to one of the big banks saying hey you know want to sponsor this dinner <laughs> right and I didn't want to kill the vibe and I just didn't want to spam like my friends totally. and uh, but it got to the point where my wife who manages all the finances in the house probably so she can run away at any time was <laughs> was looking at the credit card bill saying, you know, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, first of all, you can't be spending money like this. Second of all, you got to get a job. Like, like, I know you're unemployable, but this is ridiculous. You were supposed to build something else. You know, you're, you're, you're 38 years old. And, uh, and that's like, what led the... Yeah, and, builds, uh, yeah and, that, and that's what led the Voray, actually. And that, uh, you know, she was like, you can't do these drinks anymore. Like, you know, no more drinks. you got to get a sponsor. And then finally I was like, all right, let me go get a sponsor for this thing. And I think I, you've got a good business Sherpa there. Yeah. Oh, well, Sarah? Yeah. Oh, I, I, yeah. She'll never listen to this. My mother will listen to this. But, you know, Sarah, <laughs> Sarah's fantastic. Yeah, she's, uh, you know, I think any business needs partners. Uh, whether it's in life or whether it's the business itself. And that's why I always tell people if you're going to choose a co-founder, make sure that person is actually good at relationships in their personal life with other people. You know, don't never have a co-founder who has a very tough time building relationships, is divorced eight times, you know, and, and it's incapable of uh, having partnerships. All right. Same thing with investors or anybody else. Like I try to surround you know, and that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with those people. Right. I'm just saying, you know, if you're going to have partnerships, have partnerships with people that are capable and proven that they can have partnerships. Right. Is building relationships something that you have studied and taken a step back and maybe written about or thought about how, um, how relationships get put together? Or is that something you've always done naturally? It's not something I've studied. It's really just something I enjoy. I like being an advocate. Yeah. I mean, that's something I have found really appeals to me. What I mean by advocates is... I'm the type of person who is extraordinarily happy if I help somebody succeed. And I am going to find the time in my day to help an early stage business find capital uh, if that's tough for them. Because I have the ability to do it. And if I am aligned with the business and I know investors who trust me, whether they're deluded or not, like if I know investors who are going to respond to an email I send them about a business and I think that business is fundable, there's nothing better I can do than help that company get funded. Um, and it's not because of the quid pro quo. Yeah. And I do believe in give and take. 
don't get me wrong, but I think there's a proper way to practice it. Most of the businesses who have provided me equity in their business to advise them or sit on their boards, it's because they genuinely feel like I'm valuable. It's not because I said to them, yeah, I'll introduce you to Union Square Ventures, but I need 25 bips. Right. Like like I'm going to go out of my way to be an advocate for somebody. But there's all at the same time, you have to practice essentialism. Right. You have to practice, you know, picking your battles. You can't do a lot of things badly. Right. Um, So it is a balance. But I do find just naturally I am happiest if I'm creating value for other people. But there's different from studying networking a little bit since I've been doing this business. um, I came across some. a friend of mine named Michael Roderick, he, he, he told me that, and I, and I definitely believe in this, there's really four types of people in your network. Hmm. There's, and they're actually the A, B, C, and Ds. And this is not, by the way, this is Michael's philosophy, not mine. Sure. But, and it's something interesting if you ever want to speak to him about it. I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I mean, like, so A's. A's are your advocates, right? Advocates are people who, they're always there to help you no matter what you're doing. Uh, no matter what, no matter how hard you try, uh, you can't do anything for them. They don't want anything return. And even if you've tried to do something in return from them, it's really hard. Uh, like like uh, two good examples are my partner in this business, uh, Mark Gerson. Uh, he started Gerson Lerman Group. He, he's one of the you know most fantastic people you've ever met in your life. He's very charitable. Uh, all I want to do is create value for him in this business because there's no way I can return what he does for other people. So what I do is I every now and then I buy him nice cigars. It's like the only thing I can do for him, and that he'll accept. But Mark doesn't want presents. He doesn't. He just he just wants people to be successful in his network. Um, the partner I worked for for ten years at Price Waterhouse Coopers, like his name is Brian Levy. He was the best man at my wedding. I worked for this guy for ten years. We're starting Shopkeep, and it's going okay, right? He calls me out of the blue, and he's like, "How's it going? Retail is hard." I'm like, "We're not doing retail." He's like, and, "But he's inspired that I'm trying to start some business," and he's like, "Do you need money?" I was like, are you going to make payroll? I'm like, you know, it's, it's, you know, he just wires me like $200,000 without any agreements, without anything. He's like, here, just take this. It'll be helpful. All right. Wow. Yeah. And, but that's an advocate. And yeah, there are a lot of advocates like that. And then you have the boomerangs. The boomerangs are people, and that's the B, mm-hmm. you know, and Michael says that boomerangs are people who they could only operate on a quid pro quo basis. They're not comfortable with anything else. It doesn't mean that they're bad people, but that's that part of your network. Very transactional. Very transactional. People, I find that my friends who are in finance uh, are transactional or, you know, there are a lot of inspirational venture funds out there and a lot of my friends are in venture. But if I'm not one of their portfolio companies, it's harder to really get them to support me because they only have so large a network and that's for their portfolios. They don't see it boomeranging back to them. Well, and the reason they're boomerangs is because if you ever need something, from a boomerang, you have to be pretty ready to give something in return. Gotcha. But, you know, if, a, if you ever help a boomerang, right, like I'm not comfortable with doing something because I want something in return. So if I ever help a boomerang, I try to stay out of the way when they try to do something for me. I'll say, oh, you know, don't, oh, how can you help me? Don't help me, help carry. Right. <laughs> right? Like I don't right. need anything from you. Yeah. Right? Like, but, but, but this person over there, they need help. And then there's the C's. The C's are celebrities. And celebrity from the context of when people know you know that person in yeah. whatever vertical you're in, they tend to treat you differently. So celebrities are good to have, 
right? They're good to have in your network, but it's also good to realize that people treat you differently because you have that celebrity in your network. Interesting. And then there's the Ds. The Ds are the drains. The drains are people in your life where no matter how much you help them, uh, they always feel like they're entitled to your help. For whatever reason, you always feel like you have to help them and they can never do anything with it and they kind of drain you of energy. So, you know, I tend to spend my time with the A's and the C's. I recognize the B's and I avoid the D's. And how, do you, then, how do you avoid the D's? Uh, you avoid the D's by saying no, right? One being direct. Not, there, there's there's eloquent ways of saying no. What are, what are some of the eloquent ways you you have employed? I'd really love to help you. I understand it's truly important for you, but I'm really focused on this right now. That was well rehearsed. All right. No, I mean <laughs> I, I've learned to do that over time. Of course. But there, there's ways to. Uh, one thing that I'm not good at is saying no. Yeah. I'm just not. Yeah, you and me both. I, yeah. I 100% can, yeah. can feel your pain on that one. Yeah, and, and because of that, um, and one book that I read that recently that's helped me with that is it's called Essentialism, A Disciplined Pursuit for Doing Less. I love that book. Right, and, and truly, it, 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 you know, it definitely resonated with me because I'm always involved in a lot of different things, and you wind up doing a lot of things badly. Yep. But people respect you if you learn how to say no properly. Yeah. Right. I remember, I remember, I sent an email, you know, maybe a year ago when I was starting Voray. Somebody asked me um, if I could invite Mike Lazarow to a dinner. Right, and Mike's a fantastic entrepreneur, extraordinarily successful. Absolutely. I haven't met him too many times, um, but we have a lot of friends in common. We've been in the same room many times. Um, so I reached out to Mike, and I was kind of like, "Wow, this is somebody I would love to get to know better." And I reached out to him. Uh, and asked him if he wanted to have a cup of coffee, which is a normal invite that I get numerous times. Uh, and Michael wrote back. It wasn't nasty. It wasn't arrogant. It was pretty uh, well stated that, you know, he basically didn't have time for that right now. He respects me, but and he would love to maybe do it one day. But right now, he's really focused on what he's doing. Yeah. And when I got that email, I was kind of like, man, I wish I could be more like that. Right? And I didn't think any worse of him. I actually thought more positively of him. Sure. Um, so there's a way to say no to people that, that makes them not unhappy about not having the time. But you actually do yourself a disservice, your family a disservice, your shareholders a disservice, and that person a disservice if you spread yourself too thin because then you can't help them. And maybe you signed up to do it in the first place. Right? So I like that a lot. I have yeah. a friend who's an author that uh, said his personal mantra has been say yes less. <laughs> Yeah. Which, which I think is a positive way of framing say no more. Yeah. Say no more. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I think if you're an inventor, you learn how to do that because you say no for a living. Sure. Right? You see so many things. Uh, most of the people I know who are very good at saying no but making you feel good about it are my friends that are inventors. I think they're typically um, very, very eloquent to doing it. I haven't figured out how to do that because... Um, well, everything, when you're running a networking business, everything sounds important, right? right? But also, I genuinely like people, you know, I want to I wanna meet people. I, I, I like learning and I'm curious and seeing what other people are doing. So it is a balance, but it's so important when you're starting a business, your earlier point. You have, yeah. to, you have to focus. You can't get distracted. You can't chase shiny objects. You can't meet everyone under the sun. Yeah. How are you staying focused in a networking-oriented business? I'm not staying focused. Yeah. You know, my wife hates me right now. She's like, no, I'm just kidding. But like, um, how are you staying focused? I mean, one of the things to do is get help. Yeah. Right? I mean, I have a lot of... Hire help or... Well, 
you could call it hire or you can call it, you know, inspire people to join you yeah. who believe in what you're doing. So we've done a better job doing that now. Um, I don't, you know, not being the face of it, right? Like Vore, I don't want it to be David and Mark's, you know, networking dinner business. That's not what this is about. Right. Uh, and I think if you create an effective brand, you scale it properly and you really add value to people, um, that's how we got to where we are today. And where we are today is a lot of people don't even know who's behind Vore. They just recognize, wow, this is consistently a very good intimate event I should attend. This is just a good event. And the first time you get an invite to a Vore, you have no idea what it is. You know, even if it got sent to you by one of your friends, you're like, well, I don't know what this is. Our open rate is probably less than 20% and we have to follow up directly. But after somebody has been to a Vore, there's a 100% open rate. And then the nature and voice of our business is like us. It's not a group of people taking themselves too seriously. Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's like, hey, just come join this. It's just a dinner. You're going to learn something and meet great people. Um, so being focused at that is the hardest thing. It's like, how do you not come across as a dinner person, right? How do you come across as somebody who's like really just trying to help you meet other people to advance your career? It's a tough challenge. You know, the, the nature of curation and your brand, your network, your knowledge of who's going to jive with who, mm. who should be sitting at the neck, the right table together. Mm. That's a lot of the value of the experience. Um, and it sounds like you're helping scale that a little bit with, with sort, of, sort of the host concept. Mm -hmm. How do you see this scaling beyond 20 dinners a month, or do you? Uh, I think I do. Um, I think for a couple of reasons. At first, I realized that there was a great opportunity and a trend for people to want to get together. Um, LinkedIn, as an example, or even, you know, LinkedIn's a good example. I mean, LinkedIn is a fantastic platform. It's a great CRM tool. Um, but from a networking and business development perspective, right now it is Svetlana with a hot picture in Croatia trying to sling me a developer through a, through a messenger tool. Right, it's not. She contacts you too. Yeah, she contacts you all the time. <laughs> right. I know she does, um, and it's a little spammy, and it's not fantastic for business development by any means. No. But it's a great CR. It's a great CRM, right? If I if I want to find who's the CMO of uh, Bloomberg, I can find Jennifer. But if if you're connected, I can sit there and say, you know I can say, hey, can you introduce me to Jennifer? Nine times out of ten you're like, I have no idea how I know this person. <laughs> so it's really good for jobs. It's a really good database, but it's not so effective for, you know, connectivity. And it's almost they, like they should change the title of it to connecting with people for no reason at all, right? Um, so what we're trying not to... catch Yeah, it's not as catchy, right? So what we're trying to do with Vore is just use events to help people build connections that they've actually met in person. Right. So at first, I wasn't sure if that was possible. So it became a software-enabled dinner setup company. And you know the blocking and tackling of sending out the invites and seeing who's there before the dinner. But what started happening is that people started enjoying it so much that they would come back to the platform after and connect with each other. Mm -hmm. So we built messaging tools. We built private rooms. We built sandboxes for the event to continue to live on after the fact. How's the engagement going on? 
on that. Oh, it's platform. terrific. Uh, every single person that attends one of our events comes back to the platform to interact with everybody else. Interesting. Because you, you're at this event, you don't need business cards. You're automatically connected and you've actually met in person. Like so that. you're connected with everyone that you've been to a Voray with. And there's people who have been to 10 Vorays, hosted two, sponsored or powered one. And they have a social graph on Voray that they continue to interact with. It's fascinating to me. It's also fascinating that sometimes we do these events and real senior leaders talk to each other on this platform mm -hmm. because they see it as private. And it is. And, 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 and that's nice to watch. But how is it scalable? I think it's scalable because you create a trusted brand uh, where people believe that they're a part of something that's always going to be good. Yep. Right. So, you know, what the way, the way it scales is not only can we do, you know, 100 events in four markets, five markets pretty easily, pretty quickly. But I think there's an, a real opportunity to give people value back for being a part of a professional social graph. For instance, um, you, you can, you know, you, if you want to have a leadership talk uh, with people who have developed podcasts, right, to learn about best practices in scaling your, your podcast initiative. Well, as a Voray community member, we tag everybody that's been through our events pretty well. There's a really robust taxonomy. Um, so you can just click, I want to meet um, people in media who have podcasts or have been around distribution of it. And the title is going to be Podcast Distribution Best Practices. And you can easily invite those 30 people. Yep. Uh, they know what Voray is. They're part of the community. They get the invite. The, the, the conversion is very high. And next thing you know, you have a group of people that are like-minded that you can meet because you're part of this. Um, so that's really, I think, what makes it work. Your question about curation, it happens naturally. Um, it happens naturally by the host, uh, by the person powering the event, and by Voray. Each Voray has an account manager. It's not that hard to do. This is, an e this is, a, you know, this is a dinner of e-commerce professionals that run digital brands and retailers, right? So if you're not that person, you're not going to be invited to the event, and you're surely not going to be suggested for it or cleared from the wait list. Right. So it's so it's Voray headquarters that's curating this dinner, and you get an invite because the theme is. It's it's somebody is somebody is putting together this dinner. It's not okay. Voray. Somebody in the Voray somebody community. The platform, they raise their hand. I'm a host. I'm a host, or I, I'm a or I, I'm I, I want to pay for them to meet these people. Yeah. Uh, but here's the people I want to meet, and here's an interesting topic, and then they kick off the process, and our community sees it or is invited to it. And then it comes together pretty quickly. And how are you monetizing that? Everyone on Voray pays a membership or? No, right. I mean, that's one of the things I like about it the most is that nobody pays to attend the events except somebody, one person who has a relevant product for the people in the room. As an example, um, I, I mean, a good example of this is, um, you know, way up. Way Up is an early stage business here in New York uh, that is transforming the way uh, people think about hiring undergraduates. Right? It's a fantastic business. Uh, Way Up, as a business, really wants to get their message across to CHROs of certain types of companies. Um, putting together 18 CHROs who want to come to dinner, mm -hmm. Way Up is delighted to power that dinner. 
right? We'll take a fee from way up for putting it together, which they're happy to pay. Everybody who attends realizes it's not about way up. They're actually pretty relevant. I want to hear what they're doing, right? Or another example is putting together 18 of my friends who have just raised a Series B and have children. If you've raised your Series B and have children and you don't do estate planning, you're basically lighting your money on fire. A lot of my friends in technology just don't follow those dynamics because estate planning is an innocuous piece of tax and law. But inviting my estate planner to that dinner and teaching him not to spam everybody, that they all run businesses, they don't want to be marketed to by you, but you can attend this dinner, you know, you, normally he walks out of there with 12 new clients right because everybody needs his services and he and you know so i think there's an opportunity to help our channel partners or partners who pay for these dinners to find you know offline targeted roi marketing that doesn't exist i can't tell you how many conferences i paid for at shopkeep where my cmo would say wow that was really great and we'd all be standing around saying yeah what's What's the customer acquisition cost there? Like how many customers do we get out of that? And I think CMOs are hungry for new channels that show demonstrable ROI. And the average Voray generates, you know, 50x return for the person that pays for it because they build all these authentic relationships. It's six to 12 months of coffee. It's not about them. They're in the room. They're not spamming everybody, but they're there to do business development the way it used to be. So most of our customers, if I call them customers, uh, who pay for our events, they do pretty well. And half the time, and it's just so softly sponsored and balanced that it's like every sponsored dinner you ever go to anyway. It's just well run, right? I mean, I've been to thousands like you of pretty crappy networking dinners that's paid for by some bank sometimes, right? And there's no format and I don't really know who's there and I'm kind of like, how'd I wind up here? You know, so I just want to do that better, but help the people who are paying for it at the same time. Yeah, that sounds really cool. It is cool. <laughs> well, I, I'm really, I really appreciate you sharing your journey and some of the things that uh, you're learning along the way. Because uh, you know, we've we've been doing unofficial founder dinners in our network through yeah. Verge and, and yeah. Powder Keg um, for six, seven years, and it's cool to hear how you're yeah. tackling scaling it. Yeah, um, and it, it'd be cool to see uh, you know. If there are ways to collaborate in the future. Yeah, you but, should you should host a Vore. Yeah, would love to. Would love to. Yeah. Love we to we can make it into a podcast. Cool. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's to, a pleasure. To talk with us. Where can people find you online if they want to uh, follow your uh, musings and uh, <laughs> well, concepts uh, on business? Well, I am at Olki on Twitter. Okay. O L K I E. Yep. Uh, and I have a blog, davidolk.com. Uh, which I think four or five people read, uh, and you can find. I'm the sixth because I read a little bit of it. <laughs> oh, really? The and, yeah, and you can find you can find all of our events on voray.com. V-O-R-A-Y.com. Awesome. Uh, and people should sign up for Voray. Check it out. Check out our events. It takes two seconds to sign up, um, and you'll see all the events that we're doing. And feel free to you know waitlist or try or, or, or invite yourself to one of them. And it's free. And it's free. All right. Free great dinners. I'll be on that by the end of the day. <laughs> all right, cool. Cool. Thanks for taking time. And of huh. course, we'll link all that up in the show notes so people can check it all out. Terrific. Thanks for taking the time, dude. All right, man. It's great. It's good yeah. to meet you. Likewise. All right.
Hey, it's your buddy Matt Hunkler here again. That's it for our interview with David Oak, but of course the conversation should not stop there. Please let's continue the learning. Hit me up on Twitter, Instagram, let me know what you learned from this particular podcast, and make sure you hit up our guest on Twitter as well. He's just Oki, which is O-L-K-I-E on Twitter. Let him know you listened to the show what you enjoyed the most. If you have further questions, he's super engaged, super passionate about helping entrepreneurs. So I hope you reach out to him there. I want to remind you that Powder Cake is presented by Verge, which is a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent growing companies beyond Silicon Valley. We've got a ton of free resources for starting and growing your business, all at our website, vergehq.com. We also host several events every month around the country. So check us out to see where we are. Maybe we could link up in person. I would love to meet you. Get your feedback on the podcast. Get your feedback on where your business is at and where we might be able to help. Again, that's just vergehq.com. Of course, you can also find me on Twitter. That's at Hunkler, H-U-N-C-K-L-E-R. Instagram, I'm on the same place. I love to share a lot of the behind the scenes of what we do on this podcast, as well as some of the sketch notes and sort of sketches that I do in my notebook, inspired by the guests that we have here on Powder Keg. Again, you can find the show notes at powderkeg.com. I hope you subscribe in all the places and leave us great reviews. I already know you've done that. I, I love you for that. And I appreciate you. I appreciate you for bringing your brain to these earbuds or to your speakers or to your car, wherever you're listening to this, every single week because we really try to up our game with every episode we do. If you haven't dug into some of the archives of some of the great interviews we've done in the past with people like Kara Nortman from Upfront Ventures or Jay Bear from Convince and Convert, I hope you go back and listen to some of those. We also have some really great ones coming up with serial entrepreneur and investor Jeff Leventhal, so I hope you'll tune in for that as well. Until then, keep building, keep growing, keep learning, and keep making an impact in your communities. Thanks so much.